John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so that ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth... I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring, excuse me, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things have I commanded you, that ye love one another. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, um, before I begin, I want to remind us, as I do quite frequently, that Jesus is the Almighty who created all things for his glory and for his good pleasure. He created the Son the moon, and the stars. And it says in the scriptures that he created one star differing from another star in glory. He created sheep, he created goats, and he created wolves. He created wheat, and he created tares. He created the vine, and he created the fruit of the vine, which is wine, and he says that it maketh glad the heart of man. He created oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Scripture says he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. In him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for he created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created. 
I know our deacon this morning uh, talked a little bit about some of the agricultural processes that are made reference to in the Bible. I want us to appreciate that God made it necessary to harvest fruit in, uh, in the manner in which it is harvested. And so the fact that wheat has to be winnowed, that you separate the wheat from the chaff, is all something that he ordained necessary to be done. So I want us to appreciate as we continue with the Lord's teaching here during the Lord's Supper that Jesus doesn't choose the vine as a teaching aid simply because it's convenient. Like he's walking around thinking, well, I have to express to these people some truths about the relationship with me and how they might bear fruit. And let me think, oh, yeah, well, we got some vineyards around here. Maybe I'll talk about vineyards. I want us to appreciate that God created the vineyard with its unique and peculiar cultivation requirements. He created the vine so that we would appreciate that in shadow and type, we can learn certain spiritual truths from it about God and about his relationship with his people. God says that the fruit of the vine, which is wine, makes the heart of man glad. That would be the fruit that is left on the vine until the sugar content and acidity reaches a perfect uh, point. That it is when it is just right, then it is harvested, it is crushed and it is filtered so that the impurities are removed from its sticks and other undesirable things are taken out of it, and then it is fermented. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and so he is fully God and fully man. So when he says that wine maketh the heart of man glad, he's speaking about himself, and he's speaking about the spiritual fruit that comes from the union with the spiritual vine. He's talking about himself, obviously, throughout this whole process here, and he makes that abundantly clear. Now, of all people, uh, we who are from California should know what a vineyard looks like. We should know how beautiful and orderly and symmetrical the rows of the vineyard looks upon the hills, the groomed hillside of Napa Valley. We should appreciate how important the environment is to the production of grapes, how important the weather is, how important the sunlight is, how important the temperature is. All of these things bear itself on the production of fruit. So there are certain places, certain microclimates, such as Yauntville up in the Napa Valley, where the um, grapes might grow to um, what we would call uh, perfection. The best wines, some of the best wines in the world, come from just north of us here because of those microclimates. We should appreciate when you see the vineyard how the plants are lifted up and staked vertically first before they are staked along horizontal lines so that the vines might grow parallel to and above the ground, how they're lifted up and staked above the ground so that each branch might be exposed to the sun and the circulation of the air to give them the opportunity to bear much fruit. For lacking light and circulation, it won't develop the proper sugar content. It might develop infestations from mildew and pests so that it doesn't bear much uh, fruit. So the husbandman or the, the vine dresser knows all of these things, and so he has set up the vineyard in such a way as to optimize and maximize the production of fruit. Now, Jesus' disciples ought to know these things, and so Jesus uses the vine that he has created, including all of the agricultural processes necessary to maximize fruit production, to teach them spiritual truths. Um, and this is not the first time that the Lord has used the vine in order to teach spiritual truths to Israel. 
And so we had our deacon read for us this morning, Isaiah chapter 5 and portions of and Ezekiel chapter 15. Um, in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord lets us know that Israel is the vineyard. It says in verse 7 of, of Isaiah chapter 5, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And uh, as we read through that, we can appreciate that it was God who planted the vine, and uh, which was Israel, and Israel did not bear fruit. It says that it bore wild grapes, which means it bore bad fruit. Then we went and we looked at Ezekiel chapter 15, and the Lord teaches us that Israel is an unproductive vineyard, and as such, it's essentially good for nothing except to be burned. Nobody builds a house out of the wood from the vine. Nobody says makes a pin out of it, which means to say make something out of it upon which you can hang something. It's good for nothing, and so it is simply burned in the fire. The Lord also uses the vineyard in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. I'll just read that one verse there. And there he says, Yet I, meaning God, had planted thee a noble vine. Speaking of Israel, how they started out. He planted them a, a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Well, we know how that happened. They moved into idolatry. And so the Lord speaks of that in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. And I'll read that also, Hosea 10, 1. It says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images, meaning they've set up altars and they've worshipped at, uh, at false altars. So Israel, because they're an idolatrous nation, produced no fruit for God. So they're fit for nothing but what? The fire to be burned. And that's what he talks about in Ezekiel chapter 15, that the result of their idolatrous behavior is going to result in their destruction. And he mentions Jerusalem twice in these various verses as that in particular which will be given over to the fire. However, in Psalm chapter 80, the Lord um, brings forth some information about the vine wherein spiritual parallels are drawn between spiritual Israel and national Israel, spiritual Israel, of course, being the uh, church. And so in that psalm, it chronicles the, um, the history of Israel about how the Lord brought them out of Egypt, planted them in a goodly land, and how the boughs spread from the sea to the river, meaning from the Mediterranean Sea up to the river Euphrates, because at one time in their history under David, they actually held all of the land that God promised them, actually two times in their history. And so that particular psalm chronicles about how they suffered at the hands of the enemies of God, as does the church, and how they um, there are some within there that turn to the Lord seeking deliverance from him. And that is certainly what we do in the church. There are many enemies that attack the church, and we as God's fruit, we as the elect, look to the Lord to deliver us from the enemies of the church. So um, to help us appreciate what's going on here in John chapter 15, that we would interpret it properly, we need to ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus talking to? Who is he talking to? Well, Judas has left the group. He left in John chapter 13, verse 29. Judas has left, and so he's talking to his disciples. Disciples whom he said in John chapter 13, verse 10, before Judas left, he said, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. The one that was not clean is Judas, but he has left. So now 
Everybody is clean, uh, metaphorically speaking. They have been washed in the blood of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So he's declaring them all to be clean. Now, he hadn't yet gone to the cross, but we can appreciate that Jesus is a Lamb slain from the, uh, the foundation of the world. And he who quickens the dead calleth those things which be not as though they were. In other words, he states things that have not yet happened as though they have happened because they're going to happen. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. When God says something has happened, it means it's going to happen just as sure as he is God. So the disciples will be washed, meaning there's a future tense here that needs to take place. But for all practical purposes, they have been washed and they have been justified by Christ. That's why you'll find language in the Bible that will speak of certain men as being just men even before Christ went to the cross because they're going to be justified by the blood of Christ when he does go to the cross. Lot was said to be just. How could Lot be just several thousand years before Christ came? Well, because he was a Christian and he was the elect and uh, he looked towards the work that Christ would do. And Lot's going to come up here and, and later, so I, that's why I'm planting the seed about his name here. So for the benefit of our understanding and our appreciation here that Jesus is talking to the elect He's talking to his disciple, and he's talking about how God works with them and in them and through them. So in this parable, in verse 1, he tells us very clearly, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. So he tells us right off the back here that he is the true vine. Now, we already know and appreciate that there is a true temple, and Jesus is the true temple. He's already told us that he is the true bread of heaven. Now, there are other temples, and there was the manna that God fed the Israelites in the wilderness with, but they're all shadows of Christ, who is the antitype, and he now stands before them in the flesh, in reality, and shares this parable with us. Now, just as the temple had been destroyed and would be destroyed again by the Romans, and just as those that ate the manna in the wilderness are perished, so too did the vine of national Israel suffer at the hands of the Babylonians when he turned Jerusalem over to them, and they burned it, and they were again going to suffer when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. At that time, all of this was prophesied in Ezekiel 15, which our deacon read to us. The vine of national Israel did not bear fruit and was fit only for the fire. Now here Jesus tells us that he is not that vine, but he is the true temple. He was not the false temple. He is not the false, uh, um, let me rephrase that. He was not the, the temple that was a shadow of him, that was a type of him. He was not the manna that came from heaven, and he's not the vine of national Israel. But he's the true vine, he's the true bread, and he is the um, true temple. He also tells us here that God is the husbandman, or the vine dresser. And we certainly ought to be able to appreciate that from Genesis chapter 1 onward in the Bible, it is God, of course, who created all things. And it is God who um, spoke the earth into existence, and out of the dust of the earth he created man. And then it says that he planted a garden in Eden and put the man in uh, to dress it. And we can also appreciate in John chapter 20 that the Lord, uh, excuse me, when Mary comes to the tomb, that she thinks Jesus is the gardener. And so there's some um, spiritual humor in that, because he is the gardener. And even though she misunderstands what that means. But there is some very clear language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Bible tells us as clear as a bell that God is the husbandman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll pick it up in verse 6, it says here that I have planted, Paul is speaking of the work that he's done, Apollos watered, he's speaking of the work that Apollos has done, but God gave the increase. Verse 7, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watered, but God that giveth the increase. 
And what is the increase of God's field? It's Christians. It's the saints. Verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. We are united in the work that we do. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Everybody works individually and yet corporately. For we are laborers, and it should say of God, not together with God, but we are laborers together, saints, of God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's husbandry. What does it mean to be his husbandry? You are his tilled field. Ye are the plants um, of his um, of his vineyard. Um, so I, let me see, it's nine. Yeah, so I want to stop there. I'm going to read more later. But so, And we are God's building. We know about the, the, the true temple that we are part of that. So... The Bible uses this language about people being plants. You read about that in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, that we are the tree that is planted by um, the still waters that bears, bears fruit. In Revelation chapter 9, it speaks of men as being grass, speaks of us as being green things, and it speaks of us as being trees. So I, I think we might appreciate that's a little bit unflattering because we tend to think rather highly of ourselves, but that's the way God looks at us in terms of how he's going to work with us, nurture us, and develop us that we might bear fruit. Now, he also tells us in this parable here that his disciples, which are, again, are Christians or believers, are the branches. He says this very clearly in verse 5 when he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches, and he intimates that much in verse 4. Now, in verse 16 of John chapter 15, he says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So we can bear fruit that doesn't remain, but his desire is that what fruit we do bear, uh, that it will remain. Um, so keep these things in mind as we uh, move forward and speak to this, that it is believers that are being spoken to, and as those that are chosen by Jesus, who is God, that they will bear fruit, and that his desire is that the fruit remains, that Jesus is the vine, and that God the Father is the husbandman. So get it out of your head right now that non-bearing, non-fruit-bearing Christians are cast into the fire. Just take that thinking out of your head because that's what most of the um, com- um, commentators say. They're talking about two groups of people here. There's only one group of people here. He's talking about people that are in Christ, that are in Christ. There's something else in the context here that's going to be burned, and we're going to talk about that later, but it is not the Christian. In verse 2... He says, But every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And so again, what he's talking about here are branches that are in him. Only Christians are in Christ. Scripture says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. You're not going to become the old creature again. God is not going to um, unregenerate you. You know, like so he might uh, withdraw the efficacy of his work on the cross and change you back into the way you were. Once you're saved, always saved. In Ephesians 1.3, he speaks again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, in heavenly places, in Christ. All that we are, we are in Christ. All of the blessings that we have, we have in Christ. And we have these things because we are united with him. And this section of John, was I mentioned several weeks ago, is all about unity with the Father through Christ. So what's in view here is not unity in terms of whether or not we're in or out of Christ. 
It has to do with remaining in fellowship with him, abiding in him, remaining in fellowship with him. So one of the things that shows up in the Greek here is the word beareth not fruit. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit. That's in the Greek verb tense, which means continually bearing fruit. If you're not continually bearing fruit, then there's going to be an issue, and the Lord's going to address it. It says here that he taketh it away. And if you look up the Greek meaning of that word, it's the word "ario," and it means to take up, to lift up, to raise. And that is exactly what the husband or the vine dresser would do with a branch that is not bearing fruit. He's going to go out to the vineyard, and he's going to go take a look at it, and he's going to see that it's properly staked up to the vine, uh, to the, his uh, horizontal um, cables, and he's going to make sure it's properly staked up. He's going to lift it up. So he inspects the vine to see that everything is, is proper and that it's properly supported so that it can bear fruit. If it's not, then he'll lift up the branch. So that Greek word means lift up. And it says here, then he will purge it. And that's a word very similar to the first word. It's the word kathario. The first word was ario. The second word is kathario. They're obviously the words are related. And so what he means here, to purge something is to cleanse it. That's 1611 language, which means to clean, to purge something, to purify it. And that's what the husbandmen would do with the branch. If you've had roses that are being attacked by aphids, you'll put a little soap in some water and throw it on the plant, and that'll wash the aphids away. And so that's what the uh, uh, vine dresser would do, is he's going to want to clean up his grapes and make sure the mildew's not on them, or if he's got, um, they're suffering a parasitic infection and, uh, from insects, he's going to want to get those off, but he's going to want to purify it and clean it so it'll bear much fruit. This idea of cleansing it carries through into verse 3, where he says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And so, again, back in uh, chapter 13, verse 10, the Lord says unto them about washing people, that he has washed them, and yet they need to continue to wash themselves and that they should wash one another's feet. And what does it mean, again, for us to wash our feet? It means, of course, to clean, cleanse ourselves from the effects of walking through this present evil world. And so as Christians, how do we wash each other's feet? Well, again, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. We would bring the word to them. We would share with them the Lord's words from his Bible. We would encourage them to stay in the word. We would encourage them to read their Bible so that they would continue in fellowship with Christ. So just as Christ washes our feet through his word, and he's doing that as he's speaking to them, his words, the words of God, so too would we do these things uh, to our fellow saints, that we would share with them uh, scripture. And to help us to appreciate that, in Psalm 119, verse 9, the psalmist asked the question, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Wherewithal, how shall a man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And so you read the Lord's words, and you are obedient unto the things that the Lord says, so that you can walk in fellowship um, with the Lord. If you're not going to be obedient unto the Lord then you will not be walking in fellowship with him. Every Christian here knows what it means to sin and to feel a sense of estrangement from the Lord. During that period of estrangement, you are not going to bear fruit. Um, and you're going to want to restore that, that language. Um, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, this again being an ad- admonition, Therefore, having these promises, which are promises of eternal life, promises of fellowship with the Lord, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So we bear a responsibility to stay in the word, 
to seek the Lord's will, to get on our knees and pray unto him, seek forgiveness for the sins that we have um, committed. And he says, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. The Lord will restore that fellowship through this process of, of repentance, in which case we will then bear fruit unto the Lord. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. It's interesting how that's a two-way street. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. So again, as I've said, you must remain in fellowship with God to bear fruit. This is not a positional statement, uh, which is the reality of the Christian um, experience. We are in Christ, but there's the experiential uh, side of the equation where it's necessary for us to remain in fellowship with the Lord. Again, you're a new creature in Christ, so you are in him uh, positionally. Positionally, we're with him in heaven. Positionally, we rule and reign with him. Positionally, we're kings and priests on this earth. But practically, in our experiential walk, unless we're abiding in Christ, unless we're in fellowship with him, unless we're walking in in obedience and in conformity to his revealed will, then we're not in fellowship and we're not going to bear bear fruit. So, through prayer and reading and meditating upon his word, again, we learn to appreciate the need to look to him for all things, our need to trust him, in all things, and as the uh, admonition of Scripture says, to walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called, which simply means to walk in such a manner that you appreciate what you have in Christ and what Christ has done for you and where you're going to spend eternity, which again is with him in glory. Um, In verse 5 he says, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, he can do nothing. Now, I want to just make a couple comments here. Without me, you can do nothing. Meaning, without me, you can do nothing good. We can certainly do many things out of fellowship with the Lord, but none of them would be good. Whatever work we might be engaged in will have um, will be tainted by our flesh. It will be tainted by our motives. Uh, it will be tainted by um, simply not being uh, in Christ. The Scripture says, "Whatsoever is not of faith is sin." and all right, unrighteousness is sin. We can do nothing good outside of the Lord. So as long as this fellowship continues with the Lord, we will bear much fruit. Now what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's interesting to note in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that several things are listed, but it's presented to us as singular and not plural. The works of the flesh are plural, but the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. If you do not abide in Christ, if you're not in fellowship with Him, you will not experience this fruit of the Spirit. It will not grow in you. Um, You will not grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your conformity to his image will be slow and it will be uh, stunted and uh, it probably won't be manifest by those around you. And this is in a practical outward sense. Um, It's important for us to remain um, in fellowship uh, with with the Lord. in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 9, it says that we are to give all diligence to this process and to fellow in, in this process and fellowship with the Lord, drawing from Christ 
as the branch does from the vine, the sustenance necessary to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, which means they shall make you, neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we tend to think of, of bearing fruit as going out the saying, being a soul winner. And so that were the only thing in view here. The primary object in view here with the Lord is conforming you into the image of his son. And that's through the process of, of fellowship. And... Um, Again, abiding in him. And so the Lord is telling us here in Second Peter chapter 1 that if these things are not being developed in you, then you are being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by spending time with him and fellowship with him that you can appreciate who he is and you will then have a desire in and of yourself to be conformed to his image. Um, if you do not walk with the Lord, again, as I said, what works you do will not be good works. They will be works of the flesh, things that you will be doing according to your will, things that you will be doing according to the strength of your flesh. And I have walked in that realm many times. Things don't seem to be going the way I think they should go, and so what do I do? Rather than getting in prayer and seeking the Lord's will and seeking that he would open the doors for me, I try to push through the door on my own. I try to shoulder it open. I try to move forward in the strength of my flesh. That is not a good work. That is obviously um, not bearing fruit unto the Lord. Now, without Christ, apart from Christ, severed from the vine, we can do nothing. You will wither. Now, we appreciate here that the Lord says that without him, we can do nothing. It doesn't say without us, he can do nothing. God doesn't need us. I don't care how grand your ministry is or how grand you think it is. He doesn't need you or me to do anything. He'll go find somebody else, and he'll work with that individual. So if you walk variance to his word and his revealed will, he will not use you. He will take from you that which you already have, and he'll give it to somebody else. In 2 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Look not to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. In other words, take care that you don't lose the gifts that the Lord has already given you, and then he doesn't use you, and you do not receive a full reward. So exercise care in your ministry with the gifts that the Lord has given you uh, to minister with, that he doesn't take them away for lack of reliance upon him for the exercise thereof. In other words, depend on him that he will supply you just as the branch receives nourishment from the vine. Take care that you are in him and you're abiding with him um, as a branch in the vine so that you can draw the sustenance uh, from him to do those things that he would have us to do here. Now in verse 6 here comes the difficulty for, um, for many commentators. And so we have to make an appeal to the Greek here so that we can better appreciate what it says. It says, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We need to appreciate that this moves from the singular to the plural in the language that is used here. And it doesn't say if a man, it says if anyone, this is singular in the Greek, abide not in me, which means does not continue in fellowship with me, since he can do nothing without me, and indeed he doesn't want to do something with me, 
Why? Of course, that individual singular, that singular, is cast forth as a branch, which will naturally wither, severed from the vine. From the vine. So, if a person is not going to abide in Christ, not to continue to seek the Lord's will, not continue to fellowship with Him, the Lord will will withdraw Himself from that individual, and that individual will wither because he's not getting the sustenance and the gifts necessary to engage in ministry. And then it says here, then it moves to the plural, and they, and I'm reading from the Greek, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So notice that we've gone from the singular individual to a plurality of the number gathering them, the things that are being gathered, and the things that are being burned here. So who are the plural that gather, and what plural things are burned here? Well, as I said before, I want everybody to rest assured that God does not cast his elect into the fire. I mean, we know who goes into the lake of fire, and it is not God's elect, whether they're fruitful or otherwise. Think to yourselves of the individual in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5, who was fornicating with his father's wife. What happened to that individual? He was cast out of the church. I'm going to take a look at that because I want us to appreciate it. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, speaking of the individual that's engaged in this egregious sin. To deliver such as one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So you cast that person out. They're severed from the vine, in, if you will. And they then wither, and the intent of which is that they will certainly not lose their salvation, but they'll be restored to the church. And if you read Second Corinthians, um, the book of Second Corinthians, you realize that you can appreciate that that person was, in fact, restored to the church. Their salvation was never a question here. It was simply God having them cast out of the church through a process by which Satan would put pressure on them, and hopefully that person would then in their heart flee and turn to the Lord. So that's an example, one example here of an individual who's then um, severed from the vine. He is not, his salvation is never in question. So, again here, who gathers, plural, in, verse, in chapter 15, and what is being gathered here? In Matthew chapter 13, we can find the answer. Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42, it says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, plural, and they, plural, shall gather out of his kingdom all things, plural, that offend and them, those would be people, which do iniquity. In verse 42, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So there's two different things in view there in Matthew chapter 13. Their angels are sent forth to gather things that uh, offend and workers of iniquity. So people and things are being gathered here. So the angels gather things that offend, which includes all of the works of the flesh. In Romans chapter 14, Verse 10 through 12, it speaks about all of us standing before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We stand before the judgment seat of the Lord, but we ourselves are not judged. Our works are judged. We have been judged at the cross. Our sins were imputed to Christ and his righteousness to us. But there's going to be giving, you're going to have to give an account of what you did with the gifts that the Lord gave you. What did you do with the things that he gave you with your, with your ministry? Were you diligent in it? Were you uh, ever seeking the Lord's will, his guidance, and his counseling um, to move forward? So, again, though we are not judged, what things we have done in the flesh are judged. Now, again, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3 speaks about this where I left off last time. 
um, about works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll pick it up again in verse 9. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, uh, and ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given to me. In other words, according to the gifts that he has given me, because I'm united with him, I, as a wise master builder, have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Think about the works that you're engaged in and how you're um, um, engaged in that business. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12, now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, those are things that will endure a fire. Those are things that we're done through God working in us uh, to will of his and do of his good pleasure to him equipping us. Remember in Ephesians 2.10 that we are ordained unto good works. God has ordained us unto good works. Um, Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So the judgment of uh, the saint has to do with, with the works. The works are being judged. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Remember in John 15, the Lord has ordained that our works remain. Well, because those things that are done in Christ will remain. Works done in the flesh are burnt up. Verse 15, and if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Your works are burned up that are of the flesh, but not you. So what is in view here in John uh, 15, 6, about what is cast into the fire? It's our works. And the angels, plural, the ones that are gathering things out of this world which do offend. Those things are burned, but not us. Now, having an appreciation for this and an understanding of this, every Christian should appreciate and understand that if you do not exercise the gifts that God has given you, if you do not continue to abide in him, you will wither, and God will remove your ministry from you, and he will give it to someone else. Now, this fear is expressed by King David. But um, before I mention him, I'd mentioned Lot earlier, and I want us to appreciate what happened with Lot. What happened with Lot? All of his works were burned up. You would not know that Lot was a Christian if you didn't read Second Peter, um, chapter three, where it talks about his righteous uh, soul being um, vexed by the filthy conversation of those in Sodom. In other words, as a Christian, it was bothering him, but not so much that he would get up and actually leave. And so, uh, when he originally um, um, separated from his uncle um, Abraham, he took the very best land of the Jordan River Valley, which at the time was watered like the uh, Garden of Eden, because that was before God rained fire and brimstone. He pitched his tent towards the city, and if you look at the cities, it just gets more and more decadent as you go from north to south to where you finally end up in Sodom, which the Lord removed him from and burned whatever works he might have accomplished were actually were burned up. So the Lord was speak, teaching us a spiritual truth here as the lot was saved through fire, but his works were all burned up. So it is true for the saints. We need not fear losing our salvation. Our works are going to be burned up. With respect to King David in Psalm 51, he expresses a fear of losing his ministry. We should not understand this, too, that he's afraid of losing his salvation. As you know, he created, he uh, engaged in a grievous sin with uh, Bathsheba. He committed adultery, he stole the man's wife, and then he lied about it and murdered the man. All of these sins rolled up. In verse 6 of Psalm 51, he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's talking about being washed in the blood of Christ to cleanse him from his sins and iniquity. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. He's obviously repenting and turning to the Lord, seeking um, fellowship with the Lord. Um, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And here's the verse where he's concerned about losing his ministry. Verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's not worried about losing his salvation. What did God do to King Saul who walked in obedience and did not fellowship with the Lord? He rent the kingdom from him and destroyed his entire family. Now, when you look at the ordination of those two kings, they're very different. We can develop that some other time. But God... Um, chose David, a man after his own heart. David is a type of Christ in many ways. He's a saint. There's no um, concern here that he's going to lose um, his life. No, let me rephrase that. There's no concern here that he's going to lose his salvation. God might remove him from a throne and put his son on the throne. He might do something like that. But God made a promise to David that his son would forever sit on the throne. But the expression here is one where he's afraid he's going to lose his ministry. The Apostle Paul speaks of the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Speaking about keeping his body under subjection, not fulfilling lusts of the flesh, he says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Meaning I've gone out and I've engaged in all of this ministry. I've been exercising and using the gifts that the Lord has given me. But if I am to fall into sin here, what is the Lord going to do? He's going to cast me away. He's going to remove me from the vine, if, we, if uh, you will. That's the language the Lord uses here. And he will lose his ministry. He will not continue to move forward serving the Lord in the way that he has in the past. And so, again, as I would said, the question here is to every Christian, uh, you know, to walk circumspectly, um, to remain in fellowship with the Lord, ever be seeking his will, and uh, abiding in him in such a way that you draw your um, strength and your sustenance and your energy and the spiritual vitality to engage in the ministry from him and not from your flesh. And with that, I'll say amen.